That's Mae West from the 1933 movie She Done Him Wrong. The song is Frankie and Johnny, and I'm Jim Juno, and this is The Juno Files. Forbidden Hollywood, the Pre-Code Era, 1930-1934, is a new book by Mark A. Vieira. It's published by The Running Press and by Turner Classic Movies. Pre-Code is a genre of adult-themed, often racy films made between 1930 and 1934. The studios were supposed to abide by an industry agreement not to make immoral movies, but the Depression dragged down box office receipts and filmmakers violated the agreement. Looking at pre-code movies, modern viewers invariably say, wow, I never saw that in an old Hollywood film before. Mark A. Vieira names the 22 films, including She Done Him Wrong, that spawned enforcement of the production code, including Red-Headed Woman, Call Her Savage, and The Sign of the Cross. We talked with Mark Vieira about his new book. We're talking today with Mark A. Vieira. He has a new book out called Forbidden Hollywood, the Pre-Code Era, 1930-1934. Welcome to the show, Mark. Oh, thank you, Jim. I'm very happy to be on the air with you. Now, congratulations. The Forbidden Hollywood has just started its second printing, hasn't it? That's true. Now, this is a coffee table book, as they call them. This is a very rich photographic book. A lot of photos in the book, which are beautiful. And I like how you mentioned that that it's the pre-code era. And that era runs from 1930 to 1934. Can you briefly explain what that era means? Okay, when you say pre-code, someone would say, well, what's the code? The code was a production code that was agreed to by the film industry, the different studios, the eight majors will say, that they would not film certain kinds of material that might be offensive to children, to uh, different nationalities, different countries, to law enforcement, to government. So they, they agreed to a code that, that was a, a set of bylaws that, it, that was very specific about what could or could not be filmed. Um, so this code came in 1930. So you say, well, pre-code, how can it be pre-code if there's already a code? Well, this really means pre-enforcement of the code because there was a code for those, those, those years but it really was not enforced uh, as it would be later when it was very strictly enforced with penalties of $25,000 if there was an infraction and a seal that would be withheld so the film could not play uh, majority of, of theater chains uh, because they wouldn't take a film without a seal from the production code administration. But the pre-code era, from 30 to 34, when there was a code, but the studios had a big problem in the Depression taking, uh, taking their profits. Because if someone doesn't have a dime for, for, for dinner, they certainly don't have a dime to go to a movie. True. And movies, in, in fact, they were at that point more like 25 cents, 50 cents, 40 cents that, for the, the first-run features. But uh, so when I say pre-code, those years where you had a kind of film being made that was kind of rebellious, uh, transgressive. Uh, It was saying, well, you've given us these rules, but how are we going to to obey these rules when people aren't coming to movies? But but they will come if we put something on the screen that's kind of naughty and and, uh, sassy. 
Yeah. So that's what happened. And, that's, and the, these films are very interesting to people now because the, you know, the general idea of the classic movies, the golden era, is a kind of a, a happy ending, a hermetically sealed world with without uh, bathrooms or bodily functions. <laughs> um, you know, people. So when you see a pre-code movie. And there's all this, these double entendres and innuendos and, and sexual jokes and stuff and, and a lot of flesh. Um, a, lot of, a lot of silk nightgowns, too, or satin yeah, nightgowns. The, yeah, those, they're, they're called mm-hmm. step-ins. Um, anyhow, when people see those, they well, where did this come from? Well, you know, these films weren't shown for many years. And then suddenly in the, the 80s, people became very interested in them, and then they... They start digging into the archives, and you can, so there's a lot of them to see. But they're they're kind of a shock to the system. If you if you think it's a wonderful life, is you know that's the the world of movies, and then you see story of Temple Drake, boy, you're in for a oh. surprise. And some of the bigger stars of the era, uh, Gene Harlow, Clark Gable, um, Barbara Stanwyck, um, Joan Crawford, even. I mean, they they made a living. Uh, Joan Blondell, uh, they made a living out of out of the uh, pre-code era movies. Yeah, as as I hadn't realized when I wrote my first book in '99, uh, Sin and Focus on this topic, what I didn't realize at that time was uh, there were very many stars who became stars during this four-year period because the films were so gave them more leeway in terms of characterization. So the films were so frank. Uh, Frederick March in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Miriam mm-hmm. Hopkins, uh, uh, Barbara Stanwyck in Illicit and Babyface. I mean, these people became stars because, wow, she's, she's electrifying in this performance. And Gene Harlow, too. You're yeah. right, especially Gene Harlow. But, um, and people from the silent era, you know, from just a couple years earlier, people who had cut their teeth for, for 10 years in silent films, uh, either made the grade like Joan Crawford and Norma Shearer, or like Norma Talmadge and Mary Pickford didn't make the grade because they just didn't have that magical quality that translated into this kind of film. Now, one of the one of the main names that I, that I knew of, I knew you were going to include her in the book, I don't see how you can't, is Mae West, because she made a living out of sex. Yeah, her movies, uh, well, her plays, first of all, I mean, she became a, a sensation as a as a singer, you know, as a teenager, and then and beyond. And then she started writing plays that I mean, just nobody had ever seen her heard plays like this. And there was no censorship on Broadway, right? Uh, and there was there was no censorship in in novel writing, uh, but movies, of course, had censorship at, at all different levels, local, state, regional, and then the you know the the studio itself finally had to. To bend to this demand from from a number of, from church men and club women, basically. Uh, anyhow, Mae West became a, a sensation on Broadway. With Pleasure Man was a novel, Sex was a play, The Drag was a play, uh, and Diamond Lil was a play. And so when she came to Hollywood, it just confirmed everybody's suspicions or feelings that wow, movies are just getting more and more. Uh, Frank and more and more sexy, and this woman, you know, she wouldn't be coming here five years ago. But it was true. But um, what they, they 
failed to perceive was that her warmth and her humanity and her humor made the whole thing really work. Without that uh, kind of self-kidding uh, posture that she took, it, it wouldn't. It would have been just outrageous, and, and you know, it would have been pornography. But she was very, very clever um, to see the, the humor in every situation, uh, no matter how risque. But um, and also, you know, <laughs> it has to be admitted that her films were hugely successful financially. Right. Uh, the first two that she wrote saved Paramount from bankruptcy. Right. It was about, the studio was about to go under. And uh, so people say, oh, well, Mae West was responsible for bringing in the code. Um, that's not really true as far as I, what I've been able to discover from, if you study what was being said by the, the theater owners, um, it was more the fringe films, uh, the... the not the big A productions like A Farewell to Arms um, or Grand Hotel. Those films didn't uh, cause the, the great outcry. It was the kind of, um, what would you call them, low A's or high B's. Right. And it was the advertising for those that really was the issue. Uh, That's the one thing I, so I liked in your book was that you have these, you have these uh, I guess you want to call them half sheets, uh, recreated in the book. Uh, in the advertisements. Oh no! Do you know what those are? <laughs> I because I, I'm not crazy about posters, and I, I know people will say what. <laughs> I'm not crazy about posters because I don't like the way posters usually change the features of the person. Mm. But those ads came from the trade magazines, and oh. there there was uh, you know entire ad campaigns geared to the the theater owner, and so the theater owner would open up this. Uh, issue of um, Film Daily or Motion Picture Herald, and there'd be a, a center section with color, all full color, and about six or seven pages, eight pages, uh, and beautiful ads. Yeah. And the, those use photos of the people that, rather than paintings, and those are the ones that I, I thought were fascinating because they would say how well a film is doing or what the studio want, wanted the theater owners to think about this product. Because let's face it, you know, it's all—it's a business. It's not just—I mean, it was America's sixth largest industry, so it was uh, right a lot at stake. Now, movies and also Hollywood. Well, let's let's be honest—they didn't help themselves. You mentioned this in your in in your uh, introduction that there was a series of scandals that that happened right before the code was brought in initially uh, with uh, with Virginia Rappe and with uh, Olive Thomas. And uh, you know, so so Hollywood was undergoing some really bad bad press at the time. Yeah, there was <clears throat> really four. There was Olive Thomas, and then there was a, the Arbuckle Rappe, where he you know I suppose he raped her in, in a hotel in an orgy in San Francisco at a hotel, and then there was the murder of the director, and then there was the death of Wallace Reed uh, from uh, morphine addiction. So there was. And it was weird that the, they all came from Paramount, <laughs> which, which was, but I guess it makes sense because that company had become hugely successful because it was a merger of Lasky with uh, Zucor's uh, distribution chain, and DeMille came in you know, with his uh, genius for production. And the company became so big, so fast, and they needed products, so they're pushing, pushing, pushing people, so that there's all this 
you know, money uh, flying around. There's power. There's, uh, you know, everything that goes with uh, a gold rush, essentially. And, a gold rush mentality. And you mentioned so the you producer. Stuff going on, the drugs on the sidelines and prostitution and all kinds of stuff. Um, and you mentioned so the producer is William Desmond Taylor and... And his particular case, not only just him, but also some of the bigger starlets like Mary Miles Minter were involved and, in that one. Uh, yeah, and Mabel Norman, too. Mabel that's Norman, good. that's right. Yeah. yeah, affected by that. And it's, it's still unsolved. Now, see, this is what... So, so they brought in Will Hayes. And I noted, you know, like you make a mention that, and people don't realize this, is that there was no national rating service for movies. What played well in New York may not play well in, let's say, the state of Kansas or the Midwest. You know, different different cities had different, and different states even had different uh, societal norms, so to speak. Well, yeah, for example, can, you mentioned Kansas. Kansas uh, that was a dry, quote-unquote, dry state, and no alcohol permitted So they at that time. And so they... If there's a scene in the film with the uh, character drinking to excess, that has come out. Oh no! <laughs> but what, you know what I what really shocked me too about this whole story was that people say, "Oh, pre-code movies. It must have been just wild to go to the theater back then." Yeah, it was wild because you'd be sitting in the theater, and here's Joan Crawford winding a, a clock in a, in a bedroom, and Wallsbury comes in, and then there's a jump cut. You can hear like boom, boom, on the <laughs> soundtrack, and there's all of a sudden. It's like what's something missing because they're they're in a different part of the room all of a sudden and and they're a different part of the conversation. So this was in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was was terrible. Had a really really vicious censors. And wow. so people you know to see Grand Hotel, which was a, an event, wasn't just a movie, it was an event. To see it chopped up, people would go to other cities or other states to to see the complete movie because they knew Philadelphia was going to chop all the the good stuff out. And then uh, what shocked me also was that in New York City, the, the premier screening of the Sign of the Cross, which was another major, major event, uh, DeMille's comeback movie, and you know the real the story of ancient Rome with all that you know that entails. The theater, the first theater started cutting shots out of it, out of the um, gladiatorial scenes, uh, the Roman arena. I mean, this movie is not even in the local theater. This is the the first run. Wow. Then I went to a second theater in New York, and they cut more out. So, I mean, where were you going to see a complete movie, you know, in those days? Chances are you wouldn't. You, That's right. You wouldn't see a complete movie. What happened to all those bits that were cut out? Were they, were they cut out of the master uh, print of the movie, or were they, like, done haphazardly? I think you, you know, like okay. Well, at, at at that point, it was just the print that had gone to the the theater. But see, this is how the whole story starts. There was so much damage being done to prints that the theaters couldn't use the print after a certain theater had chopped it. Not theater, but the local censor. Mm-hmm. So they had the print to come back to go to another area, and they couldn't use it because it was missing all these scenes. So they had to print another print, which was very expensive. You know, film chemicals. Man hours, all that stuff. In those days, what they called it, man hours, not person hours. Anyway, <laughs> what I'm saying is that the, the the issue was monetary. It wasn't cultural or, or moral initially because they were having damage to their product. I mean, we like you know putting a car, uh, a rental car, 
from Hertz or Avis, and then it comes back and, and you know, the seats are all slashed. Yeah. So that was that was the situation. All right. So uh, when they could cut those things, it was in the print only in those days, unless there had been some major fight with the censorship office, the, the Studio Relations Committee, was it was called, and they said you have to this scene can't be in there. So then they would go to the negative and cut it and then remix the sound with that one reel. Each reel is ten minutes long. Okay, there's some cases where <laughs> it was too late, and they would just cut the thing and not remix the reel, so you'd have a jump cut. Yeah. But um, what you see now in films that were cut when they were reissued after the, the powerful code came in in '34, you will see these kind of jump cuts in the, in various movies. I mean, for years you saw King Kong, and King Kong was missing uh, a number of scenes where King Kong eats people and steps on them and, and does all kinds of right. unpleasant things. Yeah. Those scenes were missing from 1938 until 1969. Wow. Now, yeah, they found in somebody's attic in New Jersey, they had a, a, a print, and they put those things back in. Eventually, they, they found a complete print. I think it was in England. But uh, the point is, you for years and years, you, you there were scenes you wouldn't see. Public Enemy also has scenes missing. Um, I mean, I could, there's about about 100 films that were uh, cut. After after the code, the, the reconstituted code came in July 34. The new rule was okay. If you want to reissue this movie, make some money off some of a star who's really popular, more popular than he was three years ago when this came out. Yeah. If you want to reissue this movie, you've got to cut those scenes out. And in this case, they did not save the missing pieces. Wow. So it's so the only way these films have been restored is if a print is found in in. Uh, Russia or some, you know, Czechoslovakia, or uh, they find a print, uh, and you hope that the film, the film doesn't have subtitles. <laughs> then you got a real problem. Um, what movie, uh, or was there one movie that you that surprised you uh, to be on this list? Um, well, there were films like State Fair, which is a family film. Yeah, but there's one scene where the the, the young man going to the state fair gets led astray by a kind of loose woman, and that was in there, and, and so that film caught a lot of flack. Um, um, I guess the, the the one that surprised me when I saw it in 97 at a, in a collector's living room, because I had heard about this film as being interesting, but nothing special in terms of censorship issues, um, Search for Beauty. And I, I just sat there with my mouth open, hanging over. The, Whoa! How did they get this? Is and that film even makes fun of censors. It's very funny. It's a, it's a, an excellent film. It, it's photographically, thematically, the performances are very funny. It's, it's a delightful movie, but it really is racy. And uh, that's the one that surprised me that it was released um, pretty much intact. A couple of state censor boards got a couple of shots out the naked men in the locker room yeah. that's one of them um but i was surprised that it, it wasn't a, a big problem and also what surprised me that marlena dietrich film called the scarlet empress which came out at the same time spring of 1934 that's right yeah i was i was surprised that that one was released intact and even played on tv in the 58 59 60s from then on without cuts uh, because to me it is the most 
out there. <laughs> Street code movie of all. I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing, how can I say this? The whole story is about how a woman use, learns to use sex to preserve her power in Russia when she goes there with an innocent girl and realizes, I don't know how to play the game, I better learn fast. And yeah. she does. And it's, the film is thematically and cinematically brilliant. It's a masterpiece. But it, it's, it's really, it's really something. It's, and I, you know, ahead. by mm -hmm. detective work, I kind of figured out that uh, it slipped through and the other one slipped through, Search for Beauty slipped through, because there was so much happening in, in April, May of 34, when they would go, when they went to the, through the, the, the vetting process, the, the censors were so involved with the um, national Catholic revolt against immoral movies, and so involved with trying to get a new code in to, to pacify the, the Catholics, that uh, they just let those things slide through. There just wasn't time to, to get everything. You know, you mentioned the Catholics, and I remember now, I grew up in a Catholic family, and we even had the had the newspaper called the Record, which would be which would be published by the Catholic Arch Archdiocese. And I can still remember seeing in the movie listings when I was a kid, acceptable acceptable for fam for uh, for fa um, adults, but there is also a category called condemned. Which is yes, and this this is the thing that really. Thank you for bringing it up, Jim, because this is the the thing that really turned the tide. There there would have been full nudity by 1935 on the screen if it hadn't been for bishops and monsignors and but on Sundays in Philadelphia, St. Louis, Boston, all that that area where all the movie theater chains were concentrated too by a coincidence, but the, the areas in Chicago had the huge Catholic populations. And the priest in the pulpit says on Sunday, okay, we've got the situation, and we feel that you, you're, you're being harmed, your children are being harmed. Mm -hmm. And the only way to send a message to Hollywood to stop making these kind of movies is to, to choke off their income. And uh, it's a mortal sin if you go to a movie this week. And I don't mean a bad movie, I mean any movie. Any movie. You well. are forbidden to see, and, and they already had a list of condemned films at that time. Yes. But it wasn't working. You know, people, the Catholics wouldn't go to the condemned movie, but everybody else did. But they figured by cutting off income to these theater chains that were based in Chicago, St. Louis, Philadelphia, Boston, that they would send a message to Hollywood. And they did. The theaters were empty. And the income was was being <laughs> held back, but then the the, the theater owner, I'm sorry, the studio owners went to the Bank of America and said, "Can you help us out through this crisis? We need to make some more movies. We don't have money to make movies with because we're not getting money from those big cities from our theater chains." And the owner of Bank of America was Italian Catholic. He said, "No, I'm not going to give you a loan." Whoa! Until you until you put a new code in, until you agree to, to adopt a new code and agree to abide by it. So it, it you know, it, it shows you that, that the line between church and state was blurred um, in that a minority that, that did not, that, you know, that had religious beliefs not shared by the rest of the country uh, managed 
through a boycott to affect the cultural output of the sixth largest industry in America. Amazing. It's still, yeah, it is. It's, it's really hard to believe this could happen. Um, and you wonder, <laughs> you wonder, could it happen again? Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I'm not going to make invidious comparisons. Uh, okay. yeah. I, know what issue, I know what you're getting at, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but you can see the implication. That, you know, if, if a, a, you know, a very sincere group says, this is hurting us and you can't do this to us and we're going to stop you, and then they could do it with, uh, you know, they voted with their pocketbooks against Hollywood. Or, or they say now that using TV analogy, analogy nowadays, we're not going to buy anything that your sponsors advertise on, or right, from exactly. any sponsors. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it can happen today. Um, well, Mark, I really appreciate you taking time and and talking with me tonight. Forbidden Hollywood, the Pre Code Era, nineteen thirty to nineteen thirty four, when sin ruled the movies. I love that title. Mark, again, thank you. Well, thank you, Jim, for inviting. Forbidden Hollywood, the pre-code era 1930 to 1934, when sin ruled the movies, by Mark A. Vieira, is published by The Running Press and Turner Classic Movies. For the Juno Files, I'm Jim Juno. Frankie and Charlie, well, sweet.